0: The backwoods of Cumberland County live some of the kindest, gentlest souls you could imagine. Decent, God-fearing folks who'd gladly give you the shirt off their back or drive you into town if you should happen to run out of gas on a lonesome country road. But the backwoods of Cumberland County has also been the home to some of the most depraved and reprehensible folks who ever trod God's green earth. One such example is John Gamfer, who, in the late 19th century, pulled off one of the most diabolical stunts in the annals of Pennsylvania crime. Situated between Carlisle and Shippensburg in the South Mountain region, the village of Huntsdale straddles the southern bank of Yellow Breeches Creek. Along this stream can be found railroad tracks, which once belonged to the long-forgotten Harrisburg and Potomac Railroad. Employed by this railway as a section hand was 39-year-old John Gamfer, who, in 1890, shared a home with his wife, Rebecca, along with their 10-year-old son, Joseph, and 15-year-old stepdaughter, Bertie. Rebecca McCoy Stringfellow had married John Gamfer in May of 1875 after the death of her first husband, but the marriage had been unhappy from the very beginning he kept his wife engaged in tiresome tasks and tedious chores without showing the least bit of affection, and as a result, Rebecca grew melancholy and old before her time. Worse still, John often made Rebecca the victim of his violence, beating her severely for any reason he could find, or for no reason at all. Friends often encouraged Rebecca to abandon her brutish husband, but she had always considered her marriage vows sacred, reminding them that she had promised to remain faithful and loyal for better or for worse. As terrible as her marriage might have been, things grew considerably worse over the fall and winter of 1889. The beatings took on a new level of brutality. And, perhaps most shocking of all, her husband and daughter appeared to be acting inappropriately toward each other. <laughs> Making such a horrible accusation was simply not an option to the straight-laced 35-year-old woman. This secret affair she kept under wraps, though she confided to her brother, William McCoy, that she feared John Gamfer would kill her someday. On Tuesday, June 26th, Rebecca woke up in the morning feeling under the weather. The night before, she had taken a small dose of laudanum mixed with Lieberknight's liniment, a popular local drugstore medicine of the era. At around six o'clock on Tuesday morning, her husband offered her another dose of medicine, dropping eight drops of laudanum upon a sugar cube and ordering her to take it. She refused at first, but he insisted. She swallowed the medicine, and John Gamfer left the house. A short time later, the neighbors were attracted to the Gamfer home by Rebecca's agonizing screams. When they arrived, they found Rebecca in convulsions on the floor, her muscles twitching violently. She complained of terrible pain in her spine and in the soles of her feet. She begged her neighbors to hold her down, out of fear that her back was breaking. I believe I've been poisoned, she said to Mrs. John Young between spasms. She died two hours later before help could arrive, but held on to life until she revealed the darkest of the Gamfer family secrets. Neighbors set out in search of John Gamfer, but he was nowhere to be found. He finally returned home about an hour after her death, but expressed little emotion at the news of his wife's passing. Some of the neighbors took notice of this lack of emotion, and this would be recalled later at Gamfer's trial. Rebecca Gamfer was laid to rest on Saturday at the Huntsdale Church of the Brethren Cemetery. At the funeral, Rebecca's brother was informed about the forbidden relationship between John and his stepdaughter, Bertie Stringfellow. So revolting was this news that Willie McCoy at first refused to believe it, but the statements were corroborated by other neighbors who had been at Rebecca's side at the time of her death. Upon returning to Carlisle after the funeral, McCoy accused Gamfer of murder before Magistrate Allen, and a warrant for Gamfer's arrest was placed in the hands of Constables Thomas James and Willis Humer. Later that evening, Constable James and Humer found John Gamfer at his home, seated in a room with Bertie and John's ten-year-old son. They came upon him unexpectedly, and Gamfer offered no resistance when he was placed under arrest and taken to jail in Carlisle. The children, meanwhile, were taken to the home of a neighbor. On Sunday morning, District Attorney Most and Coroner Davis traveled to Huntsdale to search for additional evidence. After interviewing several neighbors, the men arrived at the conclusion that there were grounds for a post-mortem examination, even though Rebecca's body had already been buried. This conclusion was reached largely on the account of the undertaker who prepared the corpse, Levi Kissinger. According to undertaker Kissinger, he found that Rebecca's corpse was decomposing far faster than normal, and that it did not have the appearance of a person who had died from natural causes. The woman's ears, neck, shoulder, and back were discolored, almost black in color. The limbs were rigid, the jaws locked. Suspecting that her death might not have been natural and that exhumation might be necessary, Kissinger did not use embalming fluid on the body. When Kissinger asked Gamfer how his wife had died, the man just shrugged. Heart Heart disease, disease, I suppose, was his unemotional reply. Mrs. Philip Faust had been one of the neighbors summoned to the gamfer house on Thursday morning. Bertie Stringfellow had knocked on her door, crying and claiming that her mother was strangely sick. Mrs. Faust entered the home and observed the dying woman's painful convulsions. Rebecca told her that her husband had forced her to take the medicine and had left the house soon after the convulsions began. This story was also corroborated by Mrs. John Young, Mrs. Williamson, and Mrs. Himes. John Young told authorities that Gamfer had said that he'd given Rebecca eight drops of laudanum mixed with Liebernight's liniment. Bertie claimed that she had seen her stepfather give the medicine to her mother, but had tried to stop him. However, a druggist from Carlisle named Joseph Haverstick claimed that he had sold a customer four grains of strychnine on May 20th, one month before the woman's death. Haverstick said that the customer wanted the poison in order to kill mice. Police brought the druggist to the Cumberland County Jail, and Haverstick positively identified John Gamfer as the customer. On Monday, the body of Rebecca Gamfer was exhumed, and a post-mortem examination was conducted by Dr. A. R. Allen of Carlisle and Dr. J. H. Longsdorf of Centerville. The stomach was removed and turned over to Dr. Horn, a Carlisle chemist, for analysis. An inquest was held and a verdict was reached. Rebecca Gamfer, they believed, had been poisoned by her husband. On July 17th, Judge W.F. Sadler appointed J.E. Barnetts and S.M. Lydick as attorneys for John Gamfer, as he could not afford legal representation. Attorney Francis J. Weekly was also part of the defense team. Meanwhile, Dr. Horn, the chemist, had completed his analysis but refused to make his findings public. He sent a sealed report to the county commissioners on August 13th. These findings would not be divulged until the trial, which had been scheduled for November. On Wednesday, November 12, 1890, the trial began with District Attorney Moss declaring in his opening statement that the immoral relationship between Gamfer and Bertie Stringfellow was the motive for murder. The sensational nature of the case caused the courtroom to be packed the following morning when testimony resumed. Bertie Stringfellow was the first witness called that day, though she was not questioned about her sexual relationship with her stepfather. Undertaker Kissinger also took the stand on Thursday, as did Dr. Longsdorf, Dr. Allen, and Coroner Davis, all of whom provided damaging testimony against Gamfer. However, it was the testimony of the chemist, Dr. Horn, which everyone was desperate to hear. Horn was called to testify later that afternoon, but the defense team did its best to call his credentials into question before objecting to him as an expert witness. Judge Sadler overruled this objection, and Horn described, in great detail, his complicated method of analysis. He stated that strychnine had been detected in all three of the tissue samples he tested, one from the liver, one from the small intestines, and one from the stomach. According to Dr. Horn, a lethal dose was between one-half to two grains. Later that evening, Joseph Haverstick was called as a witness and stated that he had sold Gamfer four grains of strychnine at his Carlisle drugstore. On Friday morning, the question of motive was finally brought up. Scott McGaw, a hotel keeper from Newburgh, testified that on December 26, 1889, a man giving his name as John A. Gamfer checked into his hotel accompanied by a young girl whom he claimed was his daughter. He asked for a room with only one bed, and according to McGaw, the guests went to their room early in the evening and remained there until morning, when they left for Roxbury to visit a friend named Paisal, who happened to be the husband of Rebecca Gamfer's sister, Margaret. The next witness, Mrs. James Dixon, stated that for one year the Gamfer family had lived in a house that she owned, and during that time had caught Gamfer and Bertie in bed together while Mrs. Gamfer was away. Margaret Peisel was called to the stand and testified that neither John Gamfer nor Bertie Stringfellow had visited her home in December of 1889. Bertie Stringfellow was then recalled to the witness stand and testified that she was 16 years of age and was presently pregnant with her stepfather's child. On Saturday afternoon, John Gamfer took the stand. He claimed that his wife had been in poor health ever since they were married 15 years earlier. As for the strychnine, he said that he and his wife had used it the same day that it had been purchased by placing it on bread and setting the bread in the cellar. As for the visit to the home of Margaret Piesel, Gamfer said that he had changed his mind after checking into the hotel with Bertie. He claimed that, because of bad weather, they had not made the trip after all. After the closing arguments had been delivered on November 17th, Judge Sadler dismissed the jury, and at 4 o'clock they retired. They remained in deliberation until 9 o'clock, when they returned with a shocking verdict. Not Guilty Although John Gamfer was acquitted of murder, the testimony given during his trial provided the Commonwealth with enough evidence to charge him with statutory rape and adultery. By the time the case went to trial in May of the following year, Bertie had given birth to John's child and had become a resident of the county almshouse, where she worked as a cook for a salary of $1 per week. Once again, Gamfer would be represented in court by attorneys Lydeck, Barnetts, and Weekly. This time, however, the jury would not rule in their client's favor. On May 23, 1891, Gamfer was convicted of adultery, bastardy, and abuse of a woman-child, and sentenced to seven years and four months of solitary confinement and hard labor at Eastern Penitentiary. As for Bertie Stringfellow, it would appear that, upon leaving the county almshouse, she would become a denizen of the various houses of ill repute of Carlisle's disreputable Foundry Alley. In September of 1894, Robert McLeaf was arrested for assault and battery against Bertie, who, it would seem, was one of the prostitutes employed by McLeaf's aunt, Clara Kircher. The following year, she married Jessie Smith and went on to live a respectable, happy life in Steelton, Dauphin County, until her death in 1946 at the age of 72. While Bertie Stringfellow's life may have had a happy ending, the same could not be said for her stepfather. In 1895, the Board of Pardons rejected John Gamfer's plea for clemency. Upon his return to Cumberland County in 1897, he was arrested on five charges of larceny, but later acquitted. He relocated to York County, where he married a young woman 18 years his junior by the name of Lizzie Lowe, but she succumbed to pneumonia in 1908. By all accounts, his marriage to Lizzie had been just as tumultuous as his marriage to Rebecca. His new wife had a reputation for being less than faithful, and this inspired Gamfer to assault one of her suitors on Valentine's Day of 1905. "'If you ever come into my house again or talk to my wife, you are a dead man, Bill Hubley,' he shouted before striking him over the head with a chair." impoverished, friendless, and unable to support himself, Gamfer's final years were marked by a series of arrests for minor offenses, which usually consisted of stealing food and other basic necessities. After being caught stealing oranges, meat scraps, and candy from the Central Market in 1909, the second such arrest in two weeks, York authorities deemed him feeble-minded and committed him to the County Almshouse, where he eventually died in obscurity and was buried in a pauper's grave. Pennsylvania Oddities If you enjoyed this podcast, pick up a copy of my newest book, Pennsylvania Oddities, Volume 3, available now at www.sunburypress.com. Volume 3 features 30 remarkable but true stories from every corner of the Keystone State. And be sure to visit my blog, paoddities.blogspot.com, for over 600 bizarre tales of murder and mystery from the colonial era to the present day. The Pennsylvania Oddities Podcast is written, produced, and narrated by Marlon Bressy. Theme music composed by Marlon Bressy. Sound effects courtesy of freesound.org. Listen to the Pennsylvania Oddities podcast on Anchor, Breaker, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and anywhere else you find your favorite program. New episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. Bye-bye.